The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Norman Bates, Esquire, uh, author of Preventing Child Sexual Abuse in Youth Serving Organizations, Guidelines for Managers and Parents. Child sexual abuse is an insidious crime that can destroy the lives of innocent children and leave their families devastated. The topic of child sexual abuse is at best a difficult subject to discuss and at worst a horrifying one. But here to discuss that topic is Norman D. Bates, Esquire, co-author, he co-authored research to emphasize the importance of a proactive approach to ending child sexual abuse. Uh, he's a former assistant professor of criminal justice at Northeastern University and president and founder of Liability Consultants, which has over 20 years of experience providing security management, drafting various legislations, and writing on civil liberty issues. His work appears in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and on CBS News and the NBC Nightly News. Welcome to the show, Norman. Nice to have you on this morning. Uh, thank you, Catherine. appreciate having me on. Well, uh, as we were just, we had like a couple minutes before the show that we were, uh, you know, in, uh, talking about this topic, and I guess how prevalent it is, is and how insidious is uh, a reflection of our culture, but uh, I, I don't know, is this a new thing? Is this a new phenomenon? Because every time, you know, every day when we pick up the p- paper, uh, you know, always reading about a new uh, incident or incidents of, of child abuse in this country. So um, what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Well, it, it, uh, that's the frustrating part. I, first of all, it's not a new issue. It's certainly one that has uh, been uh, raised to the surface in, in you know, people's consciousness. Um, but the, the, in preparing uh, to, to write this uh, publication, we did a lot of research on you know, trying to figure out how serious it was, you know, how, how prevalent and so forth. And it's very difficult to come up with hard numbers. I think the... Uh, uh, CDC, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, probably came up with <clears throat> uh, probably the clearest numbers, and they were saying that basically one out of four young girls and one out of four young men um, are likely to be victimized before the age of 18, uh, which is uh, obviously a huge number. Um, but the problem is a lot of these incidents don't get reported for years later. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, 10 years would not be uncommon for a time period to pass. And, and if you uh, just look at what happened in the news recently with uh, Dennis Hastert, the former Speaker of the House, and the whole that whole situation where he uh, molested his uh, uh, one of his students uh, uh, in a wrestling, wrestling team, uh, I believe uh, one other person had already came, you know, come out right after that surfaced. So you know, here we are 20, 30 years later. Uh, so that, that's part of the problem. 
Uh, yeah, so you're talking people. about the repercussions, we'll say, for the victim are horrific because they're suffering this, what, 20 or 30 years, maybe never even telling anyone, and obviously it's going to manifest itself in different in different ways depending on the person. So you have the suffering right. for, yeah, for a, a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've, I've met people who I, you know, just come to know through, you know, as, as friends and uh, or even dated, actually, uh, and, you know, find out that they had been sexually abused as a child and, and uh, now manifesting, you know, showing uh, personality disorders and substance abuse issues and uh, all, all sorts of things, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. So your research I, 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 that, that you've done with your co-author really seeks to what? Help who to, so that we can prevent this child abuse, sexual abuse? Because there are things that we can do, I guess, as individuals, as cultures, communities, and the person themselves to protect themselves against abusers. In public situations, we're kind of focusing on you on the public situations, whether it's a camp or a school or an organization that takes care of youth or children, um, not necessarily in a family situation, but with public institutions. Right, right, exactly. The, the purpose of the publication is really to, for two things. Uh, one, to help these organizations, these, you know, the summer camp, the after-school program, uh, you know, sports program, whatever, uh, to set up better controls for the screening and background investigation of uh, employees and volunteers, which is equally important. And, and I think probably uh, mostly, most important, the supervision and training of the employees. Uh, I, I think, in a single word, uh, this is all about education. You know, educating the the child about what's uh, inappropriate behavior by an adult. Uh, educating the parents that they're aware of the issues, and then educating the folks in these institutions or organizations so that they uh, can take steps to reduce the risk of it happening. Well, let's start with one of those. Okay, let's start with the organization itself. What can they do? Well, it's summertime. Let's talk about summer camps. Um, what does the director of the camp do in terms of hiring practices or ongoing education? Or Because um, I think that's obviously relevant now. We have a lot of after-school programs, camp programs going on in the summertime, right. and uh, parents are working full-time. So what do we do? What did, how do you well, approach well, it? Well, you know, it starts obviously at the, at the hiring process and, and uh, doing a proper background check. There's a lot of uh, myths or misunderstandings about what information is available or not available out there. Uh, doing a criminal history check on someone, but being mindful of the fact that most of these organizations don't have access to any national database, uh, which would be the FBI's database. There are a lot of companies out there who do background checks who claim they'll do a national database check, but they, they don't have access to that uh, FBI database. They may have developed their own uh, but what a lot of, uh, uh, you know, our clients have, we've, as we've found, uh, you know, have a misunderstanding about what's available. So where this leads you to is if, if you're, uh, I use my hypothetical, a summer camp in New Hampshire, um, if they're going to hire someone who's coming up from Massachusetts, they need to check Massachusetts criminal history, but also if the person lived in uh, Connecticut or New Jersey, they need to check that state as well. So you can't just stop at, at the one state where the person may be living currently. And then there, there's a you know a number of different things you can do during the whole 
interview process, you know, questions that we've provided in the and the well, what kind of questions would you ask? Because I'm thinking about summer camp. I went to summer camp for years and years, and I, I think there were incidences, not with me, but, you know, there was always a buzz that something was happening or somebody got dismissed. Um, and, of course, that was many years ago. But what do you do? Because the counselors, many of them are college kids, let's say, and maybe they don't have a yeah. criminal history necessarily, but maybe, you know, they've done things that haven't been appropriate, uh, in, but they they're really not on the radar. So how do you, what do you, can your whole staff may, made it, may be made up of mostly, you know, those kinds of, of uh, leaders. So what do you, how do you do, how do you? Well, and you, uh, you actually raised a, a very good point. A lot of these people are not prosecuted. They, they do not have criminal records uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the uh, case was never brought to, a, you know, a criminal uh, trial and so forth. But what's, what's critical is the, the organization has got to have, uh, you know, policies and procedures that prevent the one-on-one contact between whether it's a college student, camp counselor, and a, and a 12-year-old child, or, or whatever the situation might be, and and the education and training of the other staff members, so that if if a staff person sees some kind of contact or behavior between a a camp counselor and a child that seems inappropriate, that it gets reported and it gets investigated. Um, you know, you've got to depend upon your other employees to be part of your program, but that's only going to work if you educate them and train them about the, these issues. So you, as a, as a director of a camp, let's, you, you really need to, you have to address this before the kids come. It has to be part of the training program is what you say. So yeah, I guess ab- then the absolutely. other counselors police each other. It seems so... I don't know if the word is Orwellian, but it's like, boy, you know, you, it's supposed to be such a great experience, and you're going to camp, and everybody has good intentions, and here you, you really do have to sit down and address this stuff. Um, well, you know, it, it, and that's what's, you know, so unpleasant about this. I mean, the topic is uh, very uncomfortable for most people. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a horrible uh, crime, as, as I've said many times. Uh, but... If you really want to make that summer camp experience a fun experience, then you've got to protect the kids. And, you know, it, it could be something as simple as, the, you know, we've seen in a couple of cases we've had uh, where the camp counselor developed an inappropriate relationship with, a, say, a 16-year-old girl, and, you know, alcohol gets involved, and, and then things get out of hand. Uh, you know, that that's one example. Of it. You know, it could be a older um a camper, you know, somebody who's 16, 17, who uh, has an inappropriate relationship with a 12-year-old girl. Uh, there are a lot of different scenarios. I mean, we, we, you know, we've had cases like this that we've worked on. You know, my role as the as the expert to come in and look at what the organization did or didn't do. Uh, but um, you know, you've again, you, education is oversimplifying it to say it, but that is the key to this. And, you know, it's like when we, we first started dealing with the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace back in, the, I think, the early 80s, uh, people were very uncomfortable with it and thought it was ridiculous, but we had to make sure people were educated about what the issues were so people felt comfortable in the workplace. Uh, that's true. The only thing about that is usually you're dealing adult to adult, which makes it a little less uncomfortable. This way you're right. dealing with children, so it adds another... You know, uncomfortableness, you know, dimension to it. I think. What about in in the situation you're describing? Let's say at, at camp, um, there are signs um, to that you can look for uh, potential signs of of child sexual abuse that you may see in a child. What are some of those? 
Well, um, you know, the, the, first of all, that the process that that is used by these predators is, is generally referred to as grooming, and you know, where they're trying to establish a, a, a relationship with some trust. Uh, you know, these offenders are typically people who are known to the child. It's not the stranger who drives up in the car uh, with a you know a little puppy or something. Uh, but these are people who develop a relationship and. You know, it's, it's spending a lot of time with the child, <clears throat> um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, see them outside the organization someplace, uh, you know, taking them for a ride somewhere, uh, you know, talking to them using inappropriate uh, sexual language, uh, you know, just, just different things that, you know, may mean nothing by itself, but <clears throat> taken as a whole, you know, you have to look at and wonder why this person's you know, paying so much attention to this one child. You know, part of the uh, uh, policy uh, approach from these organizations is to to prohibit uh, the one-on-one contact alone with a child so that you have a rule that uh, the Boy Scouts were one of the first ones that started this back in the 80s called the two-deep rule. Excuse <clears throat> me, And then what that means is that at any one time you have at least two adults um, Around any one child, you would never never allow the one-on-one contact. Um, so again, that's you know part of the yeah. I mean, you could at, at a camp or even any other organization. At some time, you're going to have a one-on-one contact. But I guess what you're saying is that it's a pattern. You don't want to constantly have that one um, yeah. counselor, yeah. teacher, coach, or whether always developing a pattern of being with this one kid, probably or one child, all the time. Um, and Especially so, in an area where you know they might be in a cabin or in an office space or somewhere where they've got privacy, you know, you and in that situation you want to make sure there is a second adult present, and you know, and frankly, this is important uh, too for the sake of the employees. You know, a false accusation uh, could be devastating to, to someone's career. Uh, you know, to be accused of something like this uh, and have it not be true. Uh, you know, it would be just a horrible thing to happen. So you're, you're designing, you know, the, the sort of methods, and they're fairly simple and straightforward, to protect the child, but also to protect the, the, the employee or the, the volunteer as well. Yeah, so that's a sound policy. And then also speaking of policies, um, you talk about there really have to be or there should be uh, policies in place for reporting the suspicious behavior. If someone has a feeling or another staff member feels, hey, this doesn't feel right, there has to be a, a, a procedure that they follow. What would be an example of that? Well, you know, if, if you were, we're, we're with it, you know, using the example of the, the camp setting here, uh, and, and say you've got, uh, you know, a number of camp counselors who are, as you say, college age would be fairly typical, that, you know, if, if one counselor sees another counselor spending an awful lot of time with, you know, a child alone, and it, and it seems to, you know, you get that sort of uncomfortable feeling that this is, you know, wrong, uh, it should be reported to the director of the, of the camp and, you know, that they can make their inquiry, if nothing else, to reinforce the, the camp's policies and, and to educate the, the counselor who's, you know, behaving perhaps inappropriately. If yeah. there's truly a suspicion of um, child sexual abuse, and and they use the word abuse, not just assault, because it could be behavior that, you know, exposing the child to pornography, for example, would be abuse of contact. 
um, in, in the vast majority of the states, it is a law that any suspected abuse be reported to the authorities. It could be Child Protective Services or the local law enforcement agency. And a lot of people don't understand this. If you don't, if you don't report it and it turns out to have happened, uh, and it's at least a misdemeanor or in some jurisdictions a felony offense to fail to report it. So there's a penalty uh, attached to that, and there could be fine, fines levied as well, of course, against the, the organization. Yeah, so you don't want to sit around the bunk, in this case at camp, gossiping with other counselors about this may or may not be happening. You really need to go directly to the, the, head, to the authority or whoever is running the camp. Sure, um, you know, it's like yeah. any misconduct, uh, you know, it needs to be reported. Yeah, I know it sounds like Big Brother watching, but, you know, the, the fact is your, your responsibility running a camp, it may be a lacrosse camp, for example, and that's the theme, but your primary responsibility is providing a, a, a you know, reasonably safe place for these kids to be, you know, whether they're spending uh, two weeks or the summertime there uh, while they're, you know, in your uh, responsibility. All right, so now let's kind of turn to the children because children too can protect themselves. And should they, I mean, they're the victims of this, especially obviously in a camp situation, but in all these other organizations that you talk about or that you researched as well. So, what can children do to protect themselves without, you know, you have to help them to educate them without what, scaring them or frightening them or having them be anxious or uncomfortable about being either whether it's camp or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or whatever the organization is. So, how do you do that? Well, you know, and doing it without scaring the child is probably the maybe the most challenging part of it. I think you you have to sit down as a parent with your child and and explain that look, there are some people who are are ill and uh, who are you know may uh, behave inappropriately, and you know you know I want you to feel that if if something somebody touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, or start saying things that are, are uh, you know, sexually suggestive, and you have to put it in terms of the child will certainly understand. Um, to you know, do not be afraid to tell me about it. Do not be afraid to tell, you know, the the person who runs the program. Uh, you know, you know, years ago when we were growing up, and uh, I'm in my early 60s now, so you know, it's a long time ago. I remember being told to, you know, don't get in the car with a stranger. Uh, that's you know how long we've been concerned about these issues. Yeah. Um, it's got to that be was my bit... instruction too. That was it. Don't yeah. get in cars with strangers. Don't talk to strangers too. I think that yeah. was the second piece. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and uh, but the thing here, and this is part of what makes us so insidious. Uh, these are people who the child knows and and who who on some level perhaps trusts, has some kind of a you know friendly relationship with. You know, it could be. Uh, you know, using the Dennis Hastert example, that the wrestling coach, the person who is working with you to help you to be a better athlete. Um, these, you know, we're not talking about the, the stranger who comes out of the darkness somewhere. We're talking about someone, uh, and, and they, these examples, uh, who is known to the child, may very well be known to the family as well. And and so many times we've heard people say, oh, my God, I couldn't imagine that he would ever do something like that. He seemed to be such a nice guy. Yeah. But, well, if it's your priest or your rabbi or your doctor or Jerry Sandusky right. at Penn State, those are all people mm-hmm. that you, you know, uh, trust and, and, you know, you don't have the expectation they're going to molest you. But this, I think there's another problem here, too, and um, I don't know if you address this, but, yes, you need to talk to your children. 
Um, uh, it's easy to say don't get in cars with strangers and don't talk to strangers, but when you t- start talking about sex, parents themselves have difficulty talking about those kinds of issues. And oh, I yeah. think sometimes they get caught up in not being clear or specific enough. I remember with my boys, they got sex education in... Um, this is like maybe 15 years ago in school, 20 years ago, I guess. And they would give them this kind of like convoluted, don't let anyone touch you where your bathing suit is or isn't. I got confused. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. you really have to be explicit. You know, they, they didn't want to say, the, they didn't want to say, that they don't want to say penis or vagina or anything that was that explicit. So it was right. always kind of confusing. What are you talking about? Um, and I think that's a problem. Well, it, it is a big problem, and, and you know, that's part of the reason why these folks are, the perpetrators are able to get away with this, because, you know, people by nature are uncomfortable dealing with these issues. And, but you've, you've got to uh, just think about what's important at the end of the day, and it's, a, it's about protecting that child. Um, and, and, you know, you, you educate yourself as a parent about these issues, and, you know, some parents may be overly reactive, you know, but uh, but that's okay. I'd rather see that than the parent who just is in denial and yep. doesn't want to have to address these issues. And I do want to reiterate, because I think this is an important issue that you are that you just mentioned, you know, the perpetrator is not going to be the boogeyman, the ugly, grubby old guy who you wouldn't go near anyway. It's going to be somebody who is maybe is very appealing, maybe very attractive, even if they are a stranger. So it's kind of like the, you know, opposite of what you may think that a perpetrator would look or feel like as a child. That's, yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'll give you actually an example from, you know, from personal um Experience. My one of my sons, uh, who's they're all in their thirties now, but uh, went to a summer camp up in New Hampshire and uh, for two summers in a row, and and we didn't know it until probably a year after he went the last time. But he was being groomed by a guy who he liked, who was in his late twenties, um, a, a guy who apparently played professional football maybe for one year or something, but you know, an athlete and and. Uh, he was developing. This is back before we had emails and text messages, so it's a, a few years back, obviously. But, but, but we got a letter from the, the camp a year or so after it, saying he was being investigated for child molestation, and you know, was our son uh, in any way, um, you know, approached by him? And of course, we had to sit down with our son, who you know, again now was in his thirties, but you know, I said nothing happened. But, uh, but it was a guy he looked up to, you know, that he was like, wow, this is a you know former NFL player. Um, and, uh, you know, never would have thought that, you know, something inappropriate would happen. Yeah, that's a perfect, yes, that is a perfect example. Um, I had another, I mean, and this is, when I went to camp, uh, which was kind of, and you touched on this as well, why education is really important. Uh, my camp director, who ran a great Camp, one of the it, uh, just a fantastic camp, but he I think ended up having an affair with the doctor in the camp, mm-hmm. and uh, then broke it off with her, and then she accused him of child molestation because she was trying to get back at him for breaking up the affair. How's that? And so it actually ruined oh, his yeah. career and ruined the entire. I think the camp actually had to close down after twenty or thirty years of being considered one of the best camps in the country. So well, that was kind you, of a twist, another twist to, yeah. to this whole thing. You, you raise uh, another another point. You know, we, we, we deal with the civil liability of these organizations and, you know, their you know, potential financial exposure. 
but <clears throat> if if you uh, you know your your example is a great one because it could, it could cause a business such uh, you know negative you know impact uh, reputation wise that uh, they end up closing down. I mean, who's going to send their kid to a, a summer camp program or an after school program, a sports program? When uh, you know it's been discovered that that this kind of abuse has been going on, um, so it could have a devastating impact financially, both initially in a, in a lawsuit, as well as the impact on the business in the long term. Yeah, we've been focusing on camps, so um, yeah. should we? Because I think obviously uh, camp is, is camp is in the summertime, but all year round. I mean, the kids are exposed. Let's say schools, coaches. Uh, those kinds of situations, and you, as you said, after-school programs. Um, well, we we, we had a case a, a couple of years ago involving a, a martial arts program um, where a, a guy was hired, you know, he was, he was set up a pro- program, was certified by the national organization to be an instructor, you know, set up a program, was teaching kids after school and on, you know, Saturday mornings and so forth, and it turned out he had a history that was discoverable. The national organization did not vet him uh, to find out, you know, what his background was, and he ended up molesting a, a couple of young girls, who were you know, eight, ten years old. Uh, you know, that was a situation that could have been so easily prevented uh, because he did have a history that was discoverable. Yeah. So the information uh, so, was out there. They didn't access yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. is it more difficult? Let's talk about, I mean, we're talking older kids, maybe it's easier. Obviously, you can talk to them. What do you do about programs like where you, you know, and now a lot of other working families, uh, you have like really little, you know, two, toddlers up to, say, four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, are there different things one has to do to, in terms of protecting them? Because they them can't really protect themselves. Yeah, well, uh, again, you know, if we're ta- and I have a case right now involving a daycare center with uh, two four-year-old children as the victims. And, and uh, you know, daycare facilities are uh, under a different regulatory scheme. There are laws that require uh, background checks and so forth. But when we look at these uh, type of facilities, you start looking at the design of the, the rooms, the classrooms, and the, the, uh, the, the play spaces and so forth. And there are a number of things uh, from a security standpoint that can be done by, you know, using cameras, uh, having more glass petitions instead of solid walls and, you know, mirrors and so forth that, that allow you as an administrator to be able to observe the staff and the children at, at any point in time. Uh, you know, even design of, uh, you know, restrooms and the stalls and all these kinds of things can help, you know, enhance uh, your ability to, uh, supervise and observe, which is what your what your goal is in that situation. Again, yeah, so we uh, do. Yeah, we do have more tools. That's true. More tools yeah. to be able to do that, which is good. We only have a couple minutes, uh, Norman. So just tell us where we can get more information about uh, your research online. Uh, you know what you're doing, and so we can continue because there's just really lots more to talk about. Yes. Um, well, the publication's available through our website. My company is uh, Liability Consultants uh, Inc. Uh, the website is liabilityconsultants.com, and if you go to that and just click on publications, it'll pop up. It's available through a, a PayPal account. And, uh, Great. You know, I, again, I would encourage uh, you know people to educate themselves about this stuff. As uncomfortable as it may be, uh, I, I keep thinking about the people who I've met in their 40s and 50s who are still uh, dealing with the trauma. 
from mm-hmm. uh, and we'll continue childhood. to. I, I don't. I think it, uh, once yeah. they, you know, that's something that will continue throughout their whole lives. So uh, yeah. you're doing really great work. And uh, Thank you. Uh, the name of the, um, the the research is preventing child sexual abuse in youth serving organizations. Guidelines for managers and parents. Uh, legal expert Norman Bates. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Have a good day. We're going to take a short break, and I'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Have you heard your 15 minutes of fame? How about four times that every single week? It's the fame game. Listen as Maddie Rose, who is up and coming in the world of fame, brings you fame from all walks of life. You'll hear from doctors, teachers, mentors, life heroes, as well as those in the fields of acting, movies, music, and more. Who knows? You might be the next one Maddie Rose talks to on the air. Listen for the fame game every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is neuroscientist Wendy Suzuki, Ph.D., and author of Healthy Brain, Happy Life, a personal program to activate your brain and do everything better. Uh, Dr. Suzuki maintains the key to a happy life is a healthy brain. And in her informative and inspiring guide, she transforms the way we think about our brain, our health, and our personal happiness. Um, happy, Healthy Brain, Happy Life is a blend of personal memoir and science narrative that reveals the powerful connection between exercise, learning, memory, and cognitive abilities. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Suzuki. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yep. So we're, you, you're... 
you maintain that if we have a healthy brain, we'll have a healthy mm-hmm. life. And that comes from your research as a scientist, but also your, I, I would call it your personal memoir as well. Absolutely. It's really inspired by my own personal life and um, finding myself you know, nearing 40 and just so focused on work and um, doing nothing but, but working in my lab. And um, I tell people that at that time, you know, my lab life was like a um, a fun dinner party that you never wanted to leave because there was always somebody interesting to talk to. But my social life was more like one of those deserted ghost towns from a Clint Eastwood Western with tumbleweed, you know, swirling in the dirt streets. And I realized I needed to do something about that. So, well, did you have um, this also... kind of aha experience? Did you say, okay, here I am, I'm 40 years old, things are really going well at work, I'm a neuroscientist, um, very well established, have a great yeah. job, and, but look at me, was that it? Like, I have yeah. no social life? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was yeah. living in New York City and doing nothing but going from my apartment to going and get takeout to, to work and, and back in that kind of schedule. It left me 20 pounds overweight and um, with really nothing else to do besides work. And um, the other thing that kind of was the aha moment for me is I did afford myself a really fun adventure vacation every year. And I went, I ended up going on, on a river rafting trip to Peru with a great group of people. Turns out there were a lot of triathletes on this trip. And I realized I was the weakest person on the whole trip. And um, that is what said, made me go, you know, there's no way. I'm, I cannot be the weakest person on the street. I'm, I'm one of the younger ones, yet I'm the weakest one. And that's what made me realize that I needed to get to the gym at least and get my, you know, get the balance of my physical body back to uh, where it needs to be. And that was the um, kind of um, start of this, of this transformation. Because once I got into that exercise and you know, it didn't happen overnight. It took a year, year and a half of really regular work. That's when I started to notice that not only did my body change, which was great, I lost, I lost some weight, but I noticed all these cognitive changes. I mean, I've studied memory for the last 20 years, and my memory was better. My attention was better. My mood was definitely better. And this seemed more than just, you know, you're, you're in a good mood or this is, you're on a roll. Um, this seemed like a real cognitive change, and that's what sent me back to the neuroscience literature to figure out what we know about the effects of um, aerobic exercise on brain function. Okay, so what is that? Because, I mean, you are obviously, as you were describing yourself in your laboratory or teaching or all of the very cerebral mm-hmm. stuff, you which is kind of um, <clears throat> ignoring your body, the physical yes. being good exit, yeah, strength and all that kind of stuff. So what exactly did happen to your, I mean, because you're saying well, it's my, mind-body isn't separate, it's all together. Yes, um, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I like to tell people one of the most surprising things that people don't realize is that um, there is um, there are actually two parts of your brain, which when you're an adult like you and I, um, there are brand new brain cells born in these two areas of the brain, not all over the brain, just two brain areas. One of them is in the olfactory bulb which is important for smelling. Um, But the one I'm going to focus on today is another structure that I've studied for the last 20 years, important for long-term memory. And that structure is called the hippocampus. And so 
without doing anything, even when I was, you know, not not working at it all, I had new brain cells born in my hippocampus, as you do. But what people don't realize is that aerobic exercise can rev up and stimulate the birth of even more new brain cells in the hippocampus. And um, I think that that is what I was noticing, that um, that uh, with with increased aerobic exercise, again, consistently over over a year year and a half as i got very regular i was i was kind of uh, um developing more new brain cells in my hippocampus structure important for memory that was enhancing my memory so this is something that everybody can do um you don't even need to buy a gym membership just start walking more starting get more um aerobic activity into your life and that is an amazing way to actually have physical, physiological, even anatomical effects on um, on this brain area critical for memory, the hippocampus. Well, what does it do, Wendy? Okay, you're saying that as adults this will happen, that you can increase your memory in your brain and by doing this aerobic exercise. But, you know, we have an aging population, obviously. Does that mean you can keep doing that to your and it still works, that you can actually change, uh, you said structure, but also function yeah. of the brain up and until you're in your, let's say, 80s or 90s, yes. or it, it will fact, still change? For the, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, a relatively recent paper that was published in the Proceedings of, Na- of the National Academy of Sciences, a very prestigious um, science journal, uh, looked at the effects of one year of increased aerobic activity. This was in the form of walking around a track in elderly people over the age of 65. There were 65, there were 70s, people in their 70s in this study. And what happens is, yes, this neurogenesis, the birth of new brain cells, does decrease with age. So you have more birth of new brain cells when you're younger, and it slowly goes down, as many other brain functions, as you age. And um, in fact, uh, as we age, not only that, but you start losing um, connections um, in the hippocampus. And in, in normal people, the size of the hippocampus starts to shrink a little bit normally, not with you know, damage or disease. What you can do with exercise, because you are stimulating, the idea is that you are stimulating the birth of new brain cells, you can, um, you can halt that shrinkage of the hippocampus because you're, you're strengthening it with, um, or you're shoring it up with the birth of new brain cells. So to answer your question, yes, this works into old age. It's not just for young people or healthy people. This is something that we all have access to. You mentioned specific things in the book, um, mm-hmm. and you call them brain hacks from the book. <laughs> yes, but yes. there are really kind of every day. Besides, you're talking obviously aerobic exercise, walking. You could slow down the deterioration and even add some, uh, you know, positive things um, to make your brain healthy and your life healthier. Um, yes. But there are other like just kind of simple things that you talk about. Um, yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I added these brain hacks because. I know very well that I can tell you, I can give you hours and hours of lectures about all the different things that aerobic exercise is doing for your brain. As I say, aerobic exercise is doing more than I just said. I just gave you a little flavor there. It's changing the anatomy, the physiology, and the function. But we all know that I can tell you this for a long time, and um, motivation is an issue. You know, people will not do this because it's hard to do. And so what I've provided is a whole bunch of what I call brain hacks, which are 
easy things that you can do in less than four minutes a, a day to get you going in these different directions that I talk about. Certainly exercise I talk about. I talk about meditation. I talk about bringing new areas, uh, new kinds of creativity into your life. But the exercise brain hacks are, um, there are several versions of them through the, through the book because this is such a big theme. And they include things that you hopefully may not think of, but hopefully think are fun, like um, having a pillow fight with somebody that you, you know, one of your loved ones, one of your kids, one of your grandkids. Um, taking the dog for a walk, uh, a really vigorous Wait, let's rock stop. Walk. What is having a pillow? I want to stop you there because you've got to yeah. explain this. Like if you have a pillow fight with your kids or your grandkids, so what's that going to do for you? How is that going to make your brain function better and have, make you feel better? So that is just a way to increase your your cardio output. It's a quick way to get, you know, get a little bit of more exercise into your life. I'm not saying that one pillow fight is going to change your brain. I'm I'm giving you hints um to be able to easily bring in start to bring in new um uh ways to exercise into your life and that we all know is a first step towards getting a a more regular exercise program so you know i could say go ahead do do like i did and and do a year of uh you know increased aerobic exercise and see what happens um but how many people are going to do that there has exactly. to be an, an easy first step and that's what these brain hacks are um are given for Okay, so get off the couch at least and have a pillow fight. Get moving. Exactly. I just yes. get that body moving. It doesn't mean you have to go to the gym and walk the track for two miles or whatever exactly. or even walk out. Okay, so just get moving. Yes, yeah. Okay. That's that's important message. I mean, I think a key message of this book is, uh, you know, I, I gave my own personal story. I could have written the whole book from the perspective of a, you know, scientist sitting in their lab, and here's all the scientific evidence. But, um you know, this is really a personal story. I did this myself, and um, um, a big message is you do not have to be a professional athlete. You don't have to be a triathlete to get these benefits, um, and and anybody can do it, and anybody can start. And so I hope that that is a, a big message that comes through. But, Wendy, I do have to say, and I don't know if this would happen to all of us. You said you were 40 and a little bit overweight. You lost the 20 pounds, but yeah. I am, you, I'm looking at your picture uh, on, on your book, on the book cover, and yeah. it also says you were photographed by Annie Leibovitz. I mean, you turned into a, not only brilliant, but gorgeous. So <laughs> I don't know if that can happen to all of us, but uh, it's quite a story. I, mean, I don't know what you look like before, but you look like a supermodel, so you've got Oh, thank both. you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I have an amazing photographer, which is very helpful, and I have to say that I think that, you know, that external um, um, beauty comes from internal beauty, and there was a huge shift in how I felt about myself um, from you know before I started this exercise program to after I started the exercise program. A lot of that was was mood. In fact, um, I think most people will uh, admit, sometimes begrudgingly, that people uh, that they appreciate the fact that they feel better um, after they've exercised. Maybe not during the exercise process, but after they you know accomplish that workout. They feel better. And um, certainly what I have been doing since I've gone on this very regular exercise regime is I have been changing my neurochemicals with exercise. And those, uh, those changes are associated with increased mood. Why? Because exercise 
increases many of the neurotransmitters that are decreased in depression. So serotonin, we've all heard of that neurotransmitter that is decreased with depression. It's increased with exercise. Noradrenaline is the same. Um, dopamine is the reward neurotransmitter in the brain. That's, uh, that is also increased with uh, exercise. Dopamine increases when you, um, uh, when you win the lotto, so when you get a big reward that's very you know, valuable to you, that, that increases. When you have sex, when you eat a great meal, when you drink a great wine or whatever really, whatever you enjoy, um, that neurotransmitter is increasing with exercise. And of course, the one we all know about, which is um, endorphins, are increasing with exercise. That is the brain's natural morphine. And so you're basically infusing your brain with all of these feel-good neurochemicals. And if you keep it up for as long as you keep it up, you, you, know, you, you get that infusion. That really changed my outlook. I've never been a depressive person, um, and I've always been kind of energetic. But it it brings you to a different level, and it allows you to kind of uh, um, uh, kind of appreciate things in a new way. And I definitely had a shift with um, um, with the exercise in terms of my outlook, and I think that shows in in everything that I I ended up doing. Yeah, and it shows, in, I mean, just looking at your photographs, your expression, your exuberance, it really does. It all kind of comes out in the picture. But And I just want to get back with, to some of the other things you had for these brain hacks because these are like really simple, fun things to do and kind of things you don't necessarily think of. And one of the things you said, and anybody can do this, anybody mm-hmm. can do this, uh, you call it what, the taste cortex brain hack, try a new kind of cuisine that you never tried yes. before because most of us tend to, we're always going to go for dinner if we're going to go out. We go to the same places all the time. Yeah. We, yeah. I mean, and we don't have to. I mean, there. You know, we just. It's just. I don't know. I think that most people. I know. I'm generalizing. You tend to make the same food every night, or you have your own repertoire. It's the same thing. Exactly. Boring. 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 So don't do that. Yeah, and that comes back to this uh, thing that I mentioned before, which is there are two brain areas where new brain cells can be born in adulthood. Uh, I focused on the hippocampus before because that's the one uh, that's important for memory and that's increased with exercise. Um, But the olfactory bulb is this other er brain area where new brain cells can be born. And that brain area isn't stimulated. More brain cells are not stimulated by exercise. Instead, it's stimulated by um, giving yourself a wider variety of different things to taste and smell. And we know this because of studies done in in rats. And um, what what we do is give them what we call, what the scientists called, I didn't do these studies, but these are um, other scientists that, that did these. Um, we They give them what they call an enriched olfactory environment, which is basically they're in a cage, but every single day they have rotations of different things to smell. Things like, you know, all the spices that you have in your kitchen. And they gave them this rotation and they compared their olfactory cortex um, in the brain to rats that were raised with no extra smells to smell. And the olfactory uh, bulb of the brains with, with all the smells to smell got significantly bigger. And so that's the origin of my olfactory cortex brain hack, where, you know, I encourage you to really appreciate all the different smells of your most um, odorous meal of the day, whether it's um, breakfast with coffee, rich coffee and toast and and marmalade, um, or it's, you know, going to an Indian restaurant, a really good Indian restaurant where you can try and at least 
start to try and differentiate all of those spices that go into the curries and, and all the other dishes that you're eating. And that's a great way to um, even enhance even more when you're appreciating and you're focusing your attention excuse me, your attention on these different um, tastes and smells to um, try and maximize that, that, that um, way to increase your brain plasticity um, with uh, appreciation of meals. So don't get into a routine. I think I keep it just some new, do something new every day in the air. You yes. get, like you said, new spices. You don't even have to go to a new restaurant necessarily. Well, didn't right. Eleanor Roosevelt say do something new every day? I think that was one of her, uh, one of the things that she always proposed. I mean, this is you know, obviously many, many years ago, but this kind of, <laughs> now you're saying scientifically that is true. I mean, they've kind of actually been able to prove that in mice and I guess in people too. So try something new. Um, yes. So what else? Because there was some oh, I, this other, and I go to museums all the time. So you had this mm-hmm. other, the visual cortex, the one about um, um, going yes. to a museum. Talk about that, because yeah. mo- mo- yeah. you know, most so, of them have um, access these to are some kind of a museum. For, yeah, um, that's one of my favorite ones as well. And and um, these are brain hacks to kind of enhance your creativity. Um, and I. I do it by focusing on different sensory modalities. So that we just talked about the olfactory uh, brain hacks. What about the visual cortex? And so this came, this tip came from an artist friend of mine um, <clears throat> who, who suggests going to a museum and you know how we like kind of quickly walk by and yeah, there's the Rembrandt, there's the Monet, there's the Manet. Instead of doing that, pick one one big picture, like pick one of those really big ones like the, that take up a whole wall and just sit there for a whole four minutes, five minutes, as long as you can, and visually explore that piece of art. Kind of try and get into the piece of art and, and appreciate the different patterns. Look at it from the holistic point of view and then go in and try and look at the different colorings that you can see in different parts of the piece of art. You don't have to be an art aficionado to just do that. Do an exploration, a visual exploration, and that way you will use your visual cortex and use your vision in a kind of interesting and intricate kind of way. And it's fun as well. It gives you a new whole new view of um, all the, you know, uh, wonderful pieces of art in in the museum. And I also think it it gives you kind of maybe changes your motivation for going to the museum because I know like if there's, I mean, I live in New York City, if there's a new opening of a a show, everybody wants, people go and then they want to sort of brag about they saw the whole show and comment on every piece of artwork they saw and who (laughs) saw the most and how much you got out of it the most. And instead you're saying, hey, just make it, I, I love that. You just, it's your experience maybe with one or two pieces and that's it. And it it, it changes you. It does. It does. It gives, I mean, because imagine the the duration of time it took these artists to make the piece of art versus how long you spent walking past it and maybe reading the little, little blurb, uh, you know, below the the painting versus just spending some time and and visually exploring and, um, and appreciating all of that work and care and creativity that went into it. Um, It's, it's a, um, it's a kind of a, a way to pay tribute to the, the effort that went into the piece of art, and I like that aspect of that suggestion as well. I do too, and, and that, that was the other thing. I will sometimes spend way too much time 
weeding the description to make sure that I remember everything about this piece of work, which I'm not going to anyway, instead of really enjoying the the, the artwork itself. So it gets more academic, which is not really the purpose of the whole thing, right? Right. Um, Okay, let's talk about music, because that's another area that you cover, auditory. Right, right. And um, so I actually, um, that's one of my favorite brain hacks as well for the creativity part of the auditory cortex, which is go to, you know, use serious radio and go to a modality of music, um, a style of music, I should say, that you're not familiar with and, and try and appreciate why people might like it. It could be a polka. It could be, you know, rap. It could be a hip hop song. Um, something that yours could be classical if you don't if you don't listen to classical music, and um, I think the specific brain hack is you know find a really popular piece of music in that genre and and try and spend some time and figure out why would people think this one is particularly beautiful. Can you appreciate it? I mean, um, I never used to like country music, but I have to say more recently it's not only gotten more popular, but I really appreciate the the feeling and the emotion that goes into some of the songs. And um, it's, it's a way to open your mind and open your, your auditory cortex to um, different forms and rhythms of, of, um, of sound that, that you might not have listened to because I was snobby and thought, oh, well, I don't like country music. Yeah. Well, it turns out I do. Yeah, well, you opened up a whole new arena, I guess, for yourself. And all of these things, music particularly, I mean, you can – do it. You're, you, I mean, you have. Every, you can listen to any kind of music that you want. However, you do it, whether it's you know whether you have a great system, you know, auto, uh, stereo system, or whatever you have, or on the internet, or however you, you you know you don't have to go to a venue necessarily. What about right. movies? Should you go to different movies? Say you know, I always say, well, I like this kind of movie, and this is what yeah. I like to see. And a certain genre, don't do that. Pick a different kind of a movie that I would never see. Like you were saying, you know, country and western, you would never yeah. go to. But yeah. Yeah, sure. I think that's a great idea. That's that's not one of the suggestions in the book, but I, I love that one. Um, there are so many different, I mean, with all the access to foreign films, too, they have a whole different style of, of filmmaking. Um, and with the easy access to even short films on on the Internet, you know, you have your, your pick of um, lots of different styles of, of visual filmmaking that, that, um, to appreciate. So absolutely, that's a great idea. Great. Well, I want to g- mention the book again. We have about a minute and a half left, so okay. I just want to make sure everybody has the title of the book, Healthy Brain, yeah. Happy Life, a mm-hmm. personal program to activate your brain and do everything better. Neuroscientist Wendy Suzuki, Ph.D., website, S-U-Z, well, Suzuki, yep, lab.com, right? Yeah, um, I, and the, the book website, that's my lab website, but okay. to get the book, the best website is wendysuzuki.com, S-U-Z-U-K-I.com. It takes you directly to all the different places you can buy the book, gives you some videos, um, lots of different links about me and my work, and it links to my lab website as well. Terrific, and also we can follow you on Twitter if we want to. Absolutely, F- Twitter, Facebook, I have a professional face. Uh, page on Facebook, so easy to find me there as well, just Wendy Suzuki. Great. Uh, great having you on the show today. Uh, great book and uh, a very practical book for changing, uh, having a healthy brain and a happy life. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. 
have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 